Chapter One of Confessions of a Daddy by Ellis Parker Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter One Our Neighbors' Babies. I guess we folks that live up at our end of town think we are about as good as anybody in Colorado, and maybe a little better. We get along together as pleasant as you please, and we are a sort of colony, as you might say, all by ourselves. Me and Marthy make especially good neighbors. We don't have no fights with the other folks in our end of town, and in them days the neighbors hadn't any reason to fight with us, for we didn't keep a dog, and we hadn't no children. I take notice that it is other folks's dogs and children that make most of the bad feelings between neighbors. Of course, we had mosquitoes, but Providence gives everybody something to practice up their patience. And when me and Marthy sat out on our porch and heard other people's children frettin' because the mosquitoes was bad, we just sat there behind our screen porch and thanked our stars that we didn't have no children to leave our screen doors open. It wasn't but right that me and Marthy should act accordingly. I don't mean that we were uppish about it, but we did feel that we could live a little better than our neighbors that had all the expense of children, and if our house was fixed up a little better and we was able to go off three or four weeks in the summer to the mountains when all the rest stayed right at home, we had a right to feel pleased about it. Lots of times we had things our neighbors couldn't afford, and then the little woman would say to me, Hiram, you don't know how thankful I am that we ain't got any children. And I agreed with her every time, and did it hearty, too. It wasn't that we hated children, far from it. We just thought that when we saw all the extra worry and trouble and expense that other people's children brought about, we were right satisfied to live the way we had lived the five years since we was married. Our neighbors still called us the bride and groom. Nor I can't say that we were happier than the other folks in our end of town, but we was more carefree. We lived more joyous, as you might say. One night, when I come home from the store, Marthy met me at the corner, and when I had tucked her arm under mine, I asked her what was the news. Bobby Jones had cut his finger bad. Stell Marks had took the measles. Little Tot Hemingway had run off, and her ma had gone near crazy until the kid was found again. The Wallaces wasn't going to take no vacation this year at all, because Fred was to go off to school in the fall, and they couldn't afford both. It was the usual lot of news of children being trouble and expense. I was feeling fine the next day being a holiday, and Marthy, with the slick way women has, sprung a favor on me just when she set the broiled steak on the table. Extra thick and burnt brown. That's my favorite steak. And whenever I see it that way, my mouth waters, and I look out for a favor to be asked. Hiram, she says, quite as if she was opening up a usual bit of talk. Did you take notice of Mrs. Hemingway's silk dress last Sunday? Why, no, Marthy, I says. I didn't. Was it new? <laughs> new, she laughed. The idea. 
That's just what it wasn't. I believe she has had that same silk ever since we lived in this end of town, and no one knows how much longer. It's a shame. She puts every cent she can dig up on those children of hers, and has hardly a decent thing of her own. I feel right sorry for her. I feel sorry for Hemingway, says I. The old boy is working himself to death. He never gets home until supper is all over, and he told me just now that he felt it his bounden duty to work tomorrow. I tell you, Marthy, children is an expensive luxury. That's just what they are, she agreed. If it wasn't for their children, the Hemingways could live every bit as good as we do, and he wouldn't have to work of nights, poor fellow. But, Hiram, she says, as if the idea had just hit her, do you recall to mind when this end of town has seen a new silk dress? Why, no, no, I said. When was it? Years ago, says the little woman. I was figuring it up today, and it was full two years ago. Ain't it awful? Downright scandalous, I says. And just on account of those children, too. Marthy looked down at her plate, innocent as you please. I'm glad we ain't got any children, Hiram, she says, full of mischief. <laughs> that tickled me. I was tickled to see how she was tickled to think she had trapped me. I guess it's our bounden duty to hold up the honor of our end of town by showing it a new silk dress, I says. And the next thing I knew, I was fighting to keep her from choking me to death. All that evening, Marthy was unusual quiet and right happy, too. As she sat on the porch, her eyes would wander off over the hills and far away, and I knew she was lost in joyous tanglement of bias and gores and plats where a man can't follow if he wants to. But when we went inside and had the blinds pulled down, she put her arms around my neck again and gave me another choke. Dear, dear old Hiram, she says, and her eyes was tear-wet. Just think, a new silk dress. And just then there came into the room the noise of the Marks child, the one with the measles, whimpering. Ain't you glad, says the little woman, that we haven't any children to spoil all our fun and bother us? And when I looked down into that happy little face of hers, I was glad, and no mistake. The next day was a beauty. It came up like a glory, and we was up almost as soon as the sun was. For we had figured on one of our regular old-time jolly days by ourselves on the hills. One of the kind that made our end of town call us the bride and groom. It was our plan to take a good lunch and just wander. Marthy was to take a book and I was to take my fish and tackle. And beyond that was whatever happy thing that turned up. If we had children, she said, we couldn't go off on these long tramps by ourselves. We got away while the neighbors in our end of town were still at breakfast. And as we passed the Wallace's place, we ran up to holler good-bye through the window at them, and there was the youngest Wallace, foolin' on the floor with her stockings not on yet, and breakfast half over. Marthy stopped long enough to have a good long look at the child. If all the children was like Daisy Wallace, she says, they wouldn't be so bad. She is the dearest thing I ever did see. 
She's got the cutest way of kissing a person on the eyelids. She looks to be just as lazy in the dress and act as the rest, I remarked, and I was surprised the way Martha turned on me. Why, Hiram Smith, she cried, didn't you ever dawdle over your dressing? When I was a girl, I got lots of fun out of being late to breakfast. What difference does it make, anyway, when she is perfectly lovely all the rest of the time? I simply love that child. I wonder, she said, sort of wistfully, if they would let us take her with us today. She would enjoy it so. Foolishness, I said. We don't want to pull a kid along with us all day. And anyhow, they are going to take her to the photographer's today to have her picture took. We went out around town and up the hill road. The morning air was great, and nobody on the road at all as far as we could see, and we stepped out brisk and lively. <sighs> Seems good to get away from the baby district, don't it? I says as we was walking up the road. We're like Mr. and Mrs. Robinson Crusoe. And at the very next turn, we most fell over Bobby Jones and his everlasting chum, Rex, which is the most no-account dog on earth. "'Where are you going?' he asks. "'Nowhere's particular,' says Marthy. "'Just walking out to get the air.' "'So am I,' says he. And then he says, sort of bluffing, "'I ain't lost.' "'Yes, you are, Bobby,' I says, severe as I could. And if you know what's good for a kid about your size, you'd better turn right round and scoot for home. He looked at me as if he would like to know who I was to be bossing him. Ho, oh, he says, you ain't my pa. I don't have to do what you say. I won't go home for you. Marthy was bending over him in a second. Bobby, she says, coaxing like, do you know what your folks is going to have for dinner? know em he says as polite as you please i do says the little woman ice cream and if you get lost you won't get home in time to get any bobby looked up the road where he hadn't explored yet and then looked back the way he'd come and then he smiled at marthy and took off his cap to her thank you mrs smith says he marthy laughed as happy as a girl and kissed him right on his dusty face. She put her arms around him, even, and acted like she had never seen a freckled boy before. "'Nice boy,' I remarked when Bobby had gone down the road to our town. "'Nice?' says the little woman. "'Nice! Is that all you can scrape up to say? Why, there ain't a dearer child in our end of town than what Bobby is. He's my sweetheart when you ain't at home.' "'Hiram,' she says, looking back at him as he paddled along, kicking up the dust with his bare toes, "'I wonder if we dare take him with us.' "'What about his ice cream?' I says. "'What about having a kid dragging after us all day?' So we went on, but I seen she felt a mite lonely-like, as you might say, which was queer. By ten o'clock we had got far enough from town, and we pushed through a field that was all covered with flowers, and over to where the brook was, with the tangle of trees and brush hiding it, and when I pushed apart the brush to go through, I stopped and motioned for Marthy to come quiet and look. 
There, sitting on a tree trunk as quiet as you please, was Teddy Lawrence, with his eyes glued on to his bobber and thinking of nothing in the world but fish. I'm a right hearty fisher myself, and it done my heart good to see the strictly business way that kid had. Marthy moved a little, and I put my hand on her to make her keep still. The boy lifted up his pole and looked at the bait like a regular old hand. He dug a fresh, fat worm out of his can and fixed it, and then I fairly held my breath. Would he do it? No, but hold on, yes! He leaned over and spit on the bait to bring luck, just as natural as life. Say, wasn't that real boy for you? I let the brush come together real quiet, and me and Marthy slipped away. Well, sir, my five-dollar pole and my two-dollar reel made me feel sick. What did I know about fishing, anyway? I felt right there what was the truth, that all my fishing amounted to was that I was trying to bring back the joys I used to have when I was a kid, setting on a log, happy and lonesome, watching my bottle cork joggle on the ripples. What was the use? A feller can't go back to them days. There ain't nothing to do about it. Unless, of course, he can sort of go forward to them and, well, a fella could sort of live them days over again in a boy of his own. Wallace don't deserve that boy, I says, sort of mad about I don't know what. What sort of dad is that old bookworm of a Wallace for a boy that likes to fish like Ted does? I'll bet Wallace never had a fish pole in his hands since the day he was born. Now, if I had a boy like that, I could show him a thing or two about fishing. If I had a boy like that, look there, says Marthy, sudden. Did you ever see anything sweeter than what that is? Over on the other end of the field, Ted's sister was straying around in the flowers, her face all rosy with the fresh air. She was like a butterfly in amongst the butterflies. A mighty pretty girl, and just the age when a mother loves a girl best, and when a mother takes the most care of em. I like pretty things as well as the next man does, and I'll say right here that there was something about that girl that made me feel like I'd like to own her, just like I felt about a real pretty rose, sort of covet to keep it just as it is forever, and take care that it don't get spoiled anyway. I guess Mrs. Wallace don't rightly appreciate Mary, says Marthy, thoughtful-like. I think she makes her study too much. When I was Mary's age, I had plenty of chances to get the fresh air, and you'd never see me taking up music lessons in the summer. I spent my time feeding chickens and running about the farm and enjoying life. It ain't right, the way girls is forced in their studies nowadays. If I had a girl like that... If you had, what did you do? I asked kindly enough, but the little woman only laughed. Maybe her laugh was a bit reckless, as you might say. What's the use of thinking what I do, she says, turning round to go. There didn't seem to be nothing special for me to say right then, so I just put my arm around her and we went on. We was plumb tired out when we got home, and maybe that is why we was more than usual quiet at dinner. I sure wasn't cross, but somehow our day hadn't panned out as satisfactory as we thought it would, and maybe the crying of the Wilkins's new baby got on my nerves, we being tired. I was glad when dinner was over and we could take our chairs and go out on the porch. 
It was a fine night, still and calm as you please. The only noise, not counting the crying of the Wilkins kid, was the sound of the laughing and chatter of the kids in our end of town. But I was lonesome. I can't speak for the little woman, how she felt, but I felt lonesome, and her right there beside me, too. Across the street we could see the two Hemingway children who had coaxed an extra half-hour to wait for their father to come home before they went to bed. They had their heads bent over a tumbler that they had caught two fireflies in, and on the porch Mrs. Hemingway was rocking the sleepy baby. Then we heard Hemingway's whistle. He can't whistle, but he likes to. And the two children dropped the tumbler and run to the gate, and then there was a rush and a mingling up of Hemingway kids and father and the sleepy baby slid down from his ma's lap and stood, unsteady but trying to get in the kissing, with its arms held out. Happy? I turned to the little woman and I looked straight at her. Somehow I knew that now, if ever, was the time for me to do some cheering up. Well, little woman, I says, cheerful-like, we don't need a lot of kids to bolster our love, do we? She gave my hand a soft squeeze in reply. And about that gown, that silk gown, I says gaily, have you decided what color it is to be yet? Won't you be fine? When I think how fine you look, I'm glad we haven't no children to... Just then... Them Hemingways went inside, and our whole end of town was quiet and lonesome. Marthy didn't answer, and when I lifted up her face to kiss her, what do you think? She was crying. End of chapter 1